This episode of Run As Radio is sponsored by Datadog. Datadog integrates seamlessly with container technologies like Docker and Kubernetes so you can monitor your entire container cluster in real time. See across all your servers, containers, apps, and services in one place with powerful visualizations, sophisticated alerting, distributed tracing, and APM. Start monitoring your container cluster with a free trial. As a bonus, Datadog will send you a free t-shirt. Get started at dd.runasradio.com. From runasradio.com, you're listening to Run As Radio, the internet audio talk show for IT professionals with Richard Campbell. This is Brandon Wen announcing show number 579, Understanding Containers with guest Janelle Crothers, recorded Monday, February 27th, 2018. Run As Radio is produced each week by Pwop Productions, providing professional media and podcasting services online at pwop.com. You can follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash runasradio. Thank you, Brandon. This is Richard Campbell, and thanks for listening to Run As Radio, bringing back one of my favorite guests today, Janelle Crothers, who's a Microsoft technical evangelist who likes computer networking, server administration, dogs, quilting, popcorn, and on most days, public transportation. Before joining Microsoft, Janelle Crothers spent 15 years as a system administrator, jack of all trades, overseeing Windows domains, Exchange Server, desktops, and other IT systems, where she struck fear to the hearts of end users with complex password security policies and email retention tags. Not thinking about technology, Janelle volunteers with guide dogs for the blind and sneaks away to read dystopian novels. Hi. <laughs> Hi. It's the best bio. I love it. I love reading it every time. That's awesome. A little dystopia never hurt anyone. No. And you could create your own dystopia with the right password policy. Let's face it. You totally could. I switched over to a password manager several years ago. And I realize now my default password rules are too steep, the ones that it generates for me, for most sites. You generally have to dial it down to be able yeah. to actually make it work. Yeah, you do. It's bad. It is, it is really something. Give me the 65-character passphrase any day of the week. Entropy is my friend. <laughs> totally. <laughs> so I had you on uh, about a year ago. We were talking about uh, automation in Azure. But the big thing that's happened in the past year is the wave of containers. Kubernetes seems to have fallen to the forefront. How do you fall in all this? What are you thinking? Containers are definitely sort of the next wave of how operations are going to be managing application services, the deployment of those things. In my head, I just kind of see it as the next logical progression of when we went from bare metal to virtual machines. This is just the next step. Sort of the same thing. And how do you compare a container to a virtual machine? They're really not the same. Mm -hmm. But in my head, like I said, it's, it's kind of the next step. You know, we're used to virtualizing hardware, and now we're just looking at how do we virtualize the operating system. It's a great way to just get more density on that machine, and it's not exactly the same thing, but it is It is like a logical progression, mm-hmm. the best way to describe it. And it does seem to me when I've seen organizations embrace containers, 
that they have the same problems we had at the beginning of virtualization, where it's like, you're going to end up with many more containers than you realize, and actually managing them is not a trivial problem. No, it's not. I mean, containers by design, though, are designed to allow you to have many more because they're so easy to take away and so easy to add on. So Mm -hmm. you get the benefits of being able to scale up and down relatively quickly compared to what we could do when it came to scaling VMs and obviously what we couldn't do at all when we were trying to scale hardware. Yeah, the big thing I found is that virtual machines, even today, are pretty hard to automate the generation of. Like, it's lots of moving parts and different bits of software. They're just not that easy to spin up dynamically, where containers seem to have had that in mind from the very beginning. Right. It's just, once you take away the underpinnings of really having to build that operating system from scratch, which is essentially what we do when we virtualize a machine, you know, it's just about putting the application in and its dependencies. So it does make it a whole lot easier and it's faster. I imagine a whole heck of a lot smaller too. Yes, yes, definitely a lot smaller. I mean, you can make a big container too. You can put a lot of, you know, stuff in that container bubble and move it around depending on what your application needs. But ultimately, it can be pretty small. And as you start looking at microservices and DevOps and how you start managing your teams and how they develop features and their applications, in theory, the more you break it up, the more agile and flexible each of those components gets to be. Do you see operations having much a role in deciding how granular the containers are and so forth? Is that basically coming from architecture and development and we just have to manage them? I think that operations has an opportunity to have a lot of say. Mm -hmm. One of the challenges that I feel we still have a lot of is you've got developers that can put whatever they want in a container. Right. But a container is another layer of abstraction that adds a different complexity. So there are some things that are going to be, you know, better together in a container or better designed a certain way because of networking or because of the way those things are going to scale or how those things connect, somebody who's doing operations might have a lot more insight on. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. In the terms of what you want to restart <laughs> or, shut, you know. <laughs> or shut down or where you want to put it or how right. they communicate. There's a bunch of different ways where basically putting in a container can make things a lot better and putting in a container can make it worse. Right. So it's just a whole other way to get yourself in trouble. It can be, yeah. It's very easy when you see the microservices zealots running around saying things like one service per container. Mm -hmm. But that just seems too granular and arbitrary to me. You know, it makes a lot of sense from a scale Mm -hmm. standpoint. I mean, one of the challenges that we had on virtual machines and particularly on bare metal was, you know, that problem where we're like, oh, I've got not enough memory on this machine but plenty of disk space Mm -hmm, or mm -hmm. plenty of CPU. So you can mix and match by breaking up the applications. You can scale the parts that you need for each of those things. You can have more compute for database and less for front end and things like that. So it really allows you to kind of manage your budget in one sense, but at the same time, the infrastructure underneath requires stuff that costs money differently. So... You can put things together, though, in one container and scale them in a bunch. And that makes sense sometimes, too. I guess it it makes sense if they're going to scale together anyway. Right. Because why scale up two sets of containers when you could scale up one set of containers? Right. But by breaking things out, it allows you to not only scale, but iterate. So whatever's in that container would have to iterate together when you wanted to add a feature. Right. So if you had one thing that wasn't going to change and another thing that changed... 
you're going to be redeploying the thing that didn't change because it happens to be built into the same container mechanism. So that's one of the reasons people like to really break things up. It allows you to iterate. So from a, like a DevOps agile sort of standpoint, it allows the teams that are working on one portion of that application to iterate faster or slower than another team based on their needs. And maybe we need to say this clearly, but you never update a running container. No. You make new ones. So you modify the scripts that generate them. You make new ones, kill the old ones. We are living in cattle land, no pets. Yes, there's a lot of cattle here. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But it also means that you don't want any permanent storage in a container. Right. You want to make sure that you're putting your data someplace else right. that's more persistent. Yeah, it's more persistent than that. And how cloud-centric is all this tech? Should I only be looking at this if I'm all in on the cloud? You can do it on-prem. You can build Kubernetes clusters. You can build Docker swarms. You can do all of that stuff on-prem. So a lot of people like to look at it as a way to get density on equipment that they already own, similar to the way that we did that with VMs. Right. However, the flip side is on that is depending on what application you're doing this for, you can run into challenges trying to do like, you know, it's like it's not the end all be all for something like lift and shift or something like that. You really have to look at what your application's for, what you hope to use it for in the future, how you want to, you know, change it to meet more modern application and business practices. So the cloud is the easiest way to do it. Plus, there's so many different ways to just put a container in the cloud. We've got, you know, container instances, we have Kubernetes clusters, you have a whole bunch of, you know, as a function sort of services that exist too, that allow you to get code running faster in the cloud than building it. Absolutely. Well, and from an operations perspective, learning how to run the infrastructure is a different set of skills than just actually using containers properly. And we may need to define some terms here because you've, you know, digging into orchestration as well as containers itself. Is Docker the definitive container in your mind? Right now, Docker is the definitive container. There's, you know, a lot of push for people that are looking at different organizations trying to do a non-Docker container Mm -hmm. structure that, you know, that's more generic, I guess. But most people know Docker. They that was kind of the easiest way to get used to that concept. And Docker comes from the Linux world. So how good is it with Windows? You know, we've matured a lot. Okay. You have to look a little bit at the history is that the components of Linux and the way that the Linux operating system was constructed. And then Docker went ahead in and, you know, used namespaces and C groups and things like that to basically make the plugs to create the container. To do the same thing on Windows, we had to do a lot of changes to the operating system to basically allow for those same plugs to work. And just as an editorial aside, I was astonished at how quickly the Windows team moved to make containers really work in Windows. Like, you think that Microsoft is a big, slow beast, and then you get a mission this clear, and they tore through that problem in just a couple of years. Oh, yeah. I mean, we've got Nano now, and if you're you know, doing the semi-annual channel releases, you know, you're looking at getting updates to you know, essentially Windows Server and consequently Nano every six months that are going to take into account you know, some of these new features and things like that. But then when you look at what we're doing on Azure, a lot of the feature set that comes out is very Linux first because the containers and the workloads are already there. Right. From a Windows standpoint, a lot of people who are doing systems administration on Windows are looking at 
you know, reconstructing legacy applications and moving a lot of legacy workloads. And there's a whole bunch of different challenges with that. But at the same time, you know, everybody's kind of looking up and seeing how can I take advantage of this container thing on my Windows workloads. So it is really great that we've made so many strides. And you mentioned Nano Server, but it seems like Microsoft stopped talking about Nano Server a while ago. Where is it suited? Like they, they don't want it for everything anymore. Well, when, you know, Nano first came out, you could put Nano on a piece of hardware and you could run a VM just running Nano. And the mission of Nano, shall we say, has changed. Nano is now our container image. Right. So this is the OS that you use for Windows containers. It's the smallest component. You can only run it as a container now. You can't run it as a container host. You can't run it on, you know, bare metal like that. It has to be used as the base of a container. Okay. You can still use um, server core as a base of a container too. Sure. It's a just a, it's a larger container. Right. So you just whatever OS you decide to use as your image OS is the base size of your container. Right. The current nano server is even smaller than the version that you'd find on 2016. Right. And they took out a lot of stuff to make it smaller. So like PowerShell core is not in there. Sure. Core, a bunch of stuff came out and you can kind of add those things back in if you need them right. for your container, but you're doing that on purpose. Yeah. You only put in what you absolutely need. It's like a minimum attack service, a minimum resource service, just the core things that you need. Yeah, exactly. And then they also took out the servicing stack. So now it doesn't update the way that Windows Server would hmm, update. Right. You treat it really like a container. You get the next version of the container and you use that image and you update your containers. Very, very Linuxy. Yeah, well, you'd never want a container to go out and try and update itself. Like that's crazy talk. You should be handling right. all of that in the scripts. Exactly. Like that's part of your your image and you know whatever you're using to build that container because you want to be able to manage that and source control that. I'm going to keep my paranoid IT hat on right now. So I'm still trying to find reasons why I wouldn't want to do this. Should we talk a little bit on the security side? A shared OS image is concerning. Just like the idea that your base image is, what do you, I mean, I mean, it's not, I mean, you're taking a copy of it. So it's right. not really shared, but you're talking about on top of the host. Right. That the shared OS on top of there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So each container is running essentially like, a process, you mm-hmm. know, in its own process space. So a lot of concern or, you know, security worries would be what if a container breaks out of its container and then can get into other containers. And, you know, that can be a concern. It's slim in a lot of cases, right? but it's not entirely unheard of. I mean, we've had, you know, lots of news about potential hacks. Well, Meltdown inspectors seem to be perfectly describing that kind of vulnerability, yes. although also that vulnerability for virtual machines. Right. They jump, no known exploits. They jumped no. on it immediately. We're all taking a performance hit because of it. Exactly. Yeah. And so eventually the hardware will be fixed and we won't have this problem anymore. But yeah, it, it seems to me a stretch. You have not seen a sweeping security breach in containers in any way. Right, right. And I, you know, from from my standpoint, it's like as a hacker, you would have to like, you would have to hit a container in the right place at the right time, getting it, you know, into something else. So theoretically, entirely possible. But for the most part, we're looking at something that's relatively secure in its own process operating, much like any other process on any other operating system would work. On the Windows side, I think it's great that we, you know, have the option for you to deploy with the Hyper-V isolation and put essentially a VM of its own around that container and isolate the kernel a little bit more. So right. you do have those options as well. Does anybody do that? That seems extreme to literally run a separate VM for a given container. It does seem extreme. It's a smaller 
VM. So it's kind of like okay. a halfway point between a VM and a container, I guess. Right. But if you have a business need and if you're an operator, you know, a system admin who's trying to get or an individual developer trying to get maybe an organization that's a little slower to adopt new technologies from a security standpoint, security policy standpoint. Right. And using that security as a foil for that, this is not secure enough. You can offer them the crazy secure option. Right. Okay. Right. Exactly. I mean, you can be like, this is, this is how we can do it. What's great about that is it doesn't affect the developer. The container is developed in the same way. This is a, it's a deployment choice. That's interesting. Hey, Janelle, give me one moment here for this very important message. Containers are awesome for servers, but you've got hundreds or thousands of desktops to manage. Then what's the best way to manage your Windows clients? With group policy and mobile device management, of course, and the added superpowers of Policy Pack. Configure and lock down settings for browsers in Java, elevate standard user rights when needed, and manage the heck out of Windows 10 file associations and the start menu. If you haven't looked at Policy Pack and you have more than 20 domain joined or non domain joined machines, then you're missing out. Check out Policy Pack at policypack.com for real world problem solving demos, plus a way for you to try it out yourself. Policy Pack software, securing your standards. And we're back. It's Richard Campbell here on Run As Radio talking to my friend Janelle Crothers. We're getting up to speed on containers and the wonders contained therein. <laughs> yes, we are. You've implied some of the advantages here. The big thing being you're now updating a container just by doing the cattle thing of build the new one, move traffic over to the new one, shoot the old ones. Yeah. And because they are not VM size, that happens a lot faster. Yes. Is that the main thing that for me as an operations person, I'm going to love? It's going to happen faster and you're going to get a whole lot more density. Mm -hmm. So the same problems that we tried to solve with VMs, you know, instead of having, you know, one operating system or one machine, now we can put, you know, five or 10. Now you're looking at being able to take each one of those VMs that can run, you know, many processes and making each one of those processes a container. So you're looking at a big increase in the amount of density that you can get on any one box or any one VM. You also get the ability, particularly with Windows Server, the ability now to be able to run Linux and Windows VMs on the same box. Nice. So you don't need extra VMs or extra hardware to separate those operating systems out, which is great if you happen to be in a multi-operating system business. Yeah, no, that granularity just means it's that much easier to do all those things. But I think this sort of leads to the whole conversation about orchestration. Yeah, I get more density, but I have many more things to look at. Like, how do I manage this? Yeah, that extra layer of abstraction Mm -hmm. doesn't necessarily make this any easier. (laughs) So, you know, (laughs) so now you're taking VMs that are running on on on-prem or in the cloud, and you're turning them into clusters and putting containers across those. So now you're looking at monitoring another layering of networking, which in most cases right now is another layer of NAT, which we know how great that can be. And all of these kind of holes that you have to punch through these different layers, it's kind of like, you know, inception that you have to kind of dig down in, in order to get these things to work. And then all of these components that were once maybe on the same box or at least on the same network are now isolated. So now you need to make sure that they communicate. So Things that were easy. I have my front end web server on the same network or on the same box as the back end database. Now they're significantly far away from a, a hop standpoint, you know, a communication standpoint. Well, and I got to think someone coming at this from a Windows clustering perspective, 
where you're going over all that network load balancing configuration and so forth to amplify that up to groups of services, I think it'd be overwhelming. It's a cut. It's a lot to get your head around. Mm -hmm. It just is. And then you have to add on the monitoring, the, you know, rules around how you set up your orchestrator, you know, how many copies of this need to be running? When does it scale? How does it change? How do we upgrade? How do we upgrade the orchestrator and then the clusters underneath? Like, right. Yeah, there's still a lot of moving parts. But there is pretty good tooling here. So you're not having to handcraft all of these networks. The orchestrator will do a bunch of that work for you. Right. You know, and if you're looking at Linux and you're doing, you know, Kubernetes, obviously that ecosystem is very strong and there's a lot of contributors. A lot of people are putting in, you know, different applications. There's a lot of monitoring tools and the Windows ecosystem is, you know, growing as well. And most of the stuff's open source too. So the price is pretty generous. Yeah. The cash price is generous. Right. But there are some labor costs. Is it in our best interest to bring in an expert or is this learnable? There's not a lot of bad paths to go down. I think it really depends on, you know, whether you're at the point of we're experimenting, in which case you should totally take the time to try to learn it. Mm -hmm. But I definitely think there's a lot of space for bringing in experts when you're looking at potentially making a lot of changes to applications, especially legacy applications. Is this really a greenfield tech or does it make sense to start adding it to existing applications? Would anybody want to do that? From a greenfield, it makes it easier. Sure. You know, especially if you're developing, you know, a web-based application that's going to be used on the cloud and set up, you know, web-based authentication Mm -hmm. and Azure Active Directory and you're doing everything with APIs and things like that, you're going to, it's going to be significantly easier. When you're looking at, you know, let me take my legacy on-prem application and try to put it in a container, you start running into interesting challenges that aren't specifically because of the container. Right. But we're working with some customers right now who are trying to do some lift and shift with them. Applications that require Active Directory, on-prem Active Directory. Right. And, you know, things get really interesting when you try to throw a Kerberos into the mix. Right. And, I, yeah, Active Directory is not going to live in a, in a container. You're going to be calling to a VM. Right. But, it, but, yeah, I mean, putting Active Directory in a container aside, like, we're mm-hmm. not going to do that. But you're calling out to Active Directory from a container, which is not domain joined. Right. And not going to be. <laughs> and not going to be. Exactly. Exactly. Because it might not be living for very long. Yeah. Some of these things are, you're talking about a, a scale up pool, a bunch of instances exist briefly and they just need their credentials for the few things they're going to do and then they're going to die. Right. So, so there's definitely some challenges around that mm-hmm. and, you know, working on, you know, what are the best case scenarios for those sort of things. So from a lift and shift standpoint, sometimes it doesn't make sense unless sure. that application is going to be re-architected to be more modern, shall we say, when it comes to how you authenticate or what it's doing. And it has to be a bit more container savvy. Yes. So, yeah, there's there's not trivial things there. You know, I love this idea of densifying utilizing the hardware better. How do you know when you've over-densified? Like, what are the metrics we're watching to see crises? And I'm I'm immediately called back to those early days of Hyper-V where actually figuring out CPU utilization within a VM and in the host machine was hard. Yeah. And depending on what you're using as your orchestrator, you're going to have you know access to different tools. Right. For Windows workloads, we're seeing a lot more use on service fabric because mm-hmm. there's a little bit more, it's a little bit more Windows first right. when it comes to being able to monitor those host VMs that are acting as the cluster and working to be able to kind of kick up usage into those different layers so that you can you know, collect those metrics and things like that. 
nobody really wants to run, you know, an agent on their container because A, it's short-lived and B, it's not something that the container is really using. Right. But there's different ways of monitoring tools that come off of the host VMs and things like that. So there's different ways to monitor it, but it really comes down to, you know, what's going to work best for that application. And Service Fabric, is that really an Azure-only thing? So now we're talking containers in the cloud? Is it an Azure-only thing? Technically, you can run Service Fabric on-prem if okay. you really wanted to. But Should you? <laughs> you know, yeah, but but it's it's very easy to sort of spin up in the cloud. You'll get the cluster and everything like that. And because it's Windows first, but it's also kind of application first right. as well, which is interesting. So putting a container on Service Fabric is just wrapping it in an application manifest, which is sort of backwards, yeah. for lack of a better word. But it does speak to these folks that, I mean, I've talked to organizations that are running VMs on premises, and then they want to run identical VMs up in the cloud, and they struggle with that. And it seems to me that containers would be better at that part. Containers would be better at that because you're only moving the necessary parts of the application. Right. So you're not trying to sync that up quite the same way. The other scenario I've seen consistently when you've got this up and running well is that it's easier for developers to write software in a more production-looking configuration so that you have fewer problems moving from the code on the dev machine to the production environment. Well, isn't that the problem we've had for you know, decades is it works on my machine. This is all about suppressing that class of error of the it works on my machine error. Right, because it allows the developer to say, you know, we're using these components mm -hmm. and these libraries and these versions of this subsystem, whatever. Yeah, you really don't have an option. No. You are defining this configuration as code to create these containers or the thing's just not there. Right. And it's all in the container. So right. when the container gets built, it says, oh, I need this version of this and that version of that and, you know, so on and so forth. It's all set as yeah. part of the the code so that when you then move right out on a server, those same things are going to happen. Right. There's no, oh, this is a different version of .NET and now it's not going to work or right. whatever. It's all listed out there. It's all very clear. And I like having common architecture there. I mean, I've worked with companies where we were buying the developers these gigantic 64 gig machines because they were going to run three VMs on it as well as the coding environment they were working in just to be able to better simulate production so that they didn't make assumptions because they're all running in one environment. From an operation standpoint, theoretically, this should make systems administrators' lives easier. Right. Because what they run is something that has been tested through development. Mm -hmm. It makes testing easier. If you can spin these things up in something that's much closer to production for testing right. and rip them down and take advantage of that density, the ability to be more dense on test machines, whether they're on-prem or in the cloud or giving your developers access to, you know, a different cloud subscription to run tests to in and stuff like that. Yeah. It means that by the time you get to production, hopefully some of those really obvious problems have already been resolved. Mm. Have you seen any evidence that building software this way actually has a less costly cloud footprint? Oh, that's a tough call. Mm -hmm. I mean, theoretically, because you can scale yeah. based on time and need, you can reduce costs. Right. Some of the orchestration things that you might use are going to require, you know, a subset of VMs to simply exist. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So you're going to be paying for those. You know, would it be cheaper to pay for those than to run Azure Container instances, which could bring up the container, you know, one at a time, but can be more costly if they run in the long run? You know, you, you kind of have to play with it a little bit. These are tricky numbers, yeah. Oh, yeah. One of the things in favor of containers and orchestration approaches is 
that because it is all sort of falling into the pit of success, you can't make any of this work if you don't follow all these practices. You don't get those booby traps of lost VMs and unmanaged environments that are costing you and you don't even realize it. Right. You should have a pretty firm grip over everything in, in your container sets. And you can have that grip over VMs. It's just that it takes way more discipline to be that way. Right. Because once you've kind of built a VM, you're less inclined to want to take it down. Yes. Although, if something isn't suited for a container, there's so many different ways where you can look at getting better control over scripting and creating those VMs. So that's less painful too. And that's a great conversation all by itself, Janelle. What's just not suited for containers? It's really going to matter as to like what that container actually needs to do. Like sure. I alluded to like right now, containers that need to reach out to domain controllers on-prem. Right. That's a hard nut to crack. There's mm-hmm. a couple scenarios where it works fine. There's other scenarios where it's not going to. So you have to look at, you have to kind of look at that. Like what does this application do? Can I put it in a container? How much persistent storage and things like that is it looking at? How quickly, you know, can, can it recover? What's it going to do? Some things just make sense to still run on a VM. Sure. If it's not going to be updated routinely, Seems to me the biggest benefit of the container is it's super easy to tear them down, build new ones. Yeah. So if it's not particularly elastic and it's not changing, you're just not getting a lot of benefits from containers. Right. So it sounds like big pieces of my app should be living in containers. Like software that's being revised, broken out into containers makes an awful lot of sense. But persistent services that don't need upgrades, that's less inclined. If you're happy running an application right now on standard Windows Server, like the long-term um, mm-hmm. servicing channel and things like that, You have things where people really need access to the server. Right. A lot of traditional legacy applications, you can't just put it in a container and make it better. No, it's not that simple. Yeah. The other side of that is you're probably so used to the dread of updating those long-lived servers that you don't even think about it anymore. That you've you've just got used to, I avoid changing those things. And then it makes a self-fulfilling truth. Where it's like, we'd actually be better off as an organization if I was willing to update those things routinely. Oh, yeah. When you do something over and over again often, it's much easier mm-hmm. to recover from them. You have you have practice. I have found consulting on organizations, you know, getting them into that DevOps mindset, it's like there is pain that you've avoided so well you've forgotten it's even painful. Right. And so you have to actually make that pain visible again and then say, now we make this less painful by doing it so often we get really good at it. We've had customers that we've worked with to say, you know, this is going to be too much management pain to make Mm -hmm. a change, Mm -hmm. or this is going to be too much, you know, learning curve to make a change at at this moment. And that's fine. You know, you can wait for that application to outlive its usefulness and then just make it go away. But there seems to be this ability to be agile, uh, and I mean agile, not the programming way, but the ability for companies to react to competition and new opportunities and so forth quickly. That's what these tools were set out to do. So this could be a significant competitive advantage. It could be. It's interesting. Janelle, always fun to talk to you. The half hour flies by really fast. Uh, What's in your inbox? Where can people hear from you, see you, any of those good things? You still find my blog. My Tech Plenty blog is still up there. I don't write on it nearly as much as I probably should these days, but I'm, I'm still doing that. I'm still around in the Bay Area community as well. So I'm here. I do show up at conferences now and again as well. And, you know, you can always reach me via email or something like that. I'm around. You bet. Janelle Crothers, thanks so much for coming back on the show. Thank you for having me. It's a lot of fun. You bet. And we'll talk to you next time on Run As Radio.